Hi everyone and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales. This week we've got our third episode from the St David's Day Conference and three more interviews for you to look forward to. Upcoming we have an interview with Dr Matthew Snape, Associate Professor of General Paediatrics and Vaccinology at uh, the Oxford Vaccine Group, who will be discussing vaccine hesitancy with us. We'll then be having a chat with Dr Jennifer Evans, one of the general paediatricians with an interest in infectious diseases working here in the University Hospital of Wales. At the conference, Dr Evans spoke alongside Mercy Shabemba about their experiences as both patient and doctor in dealing with a diagnosis of HIV. Before either of those interviews, however, we have a chat with Ashling Beecher. She's the managing editor of Milestones magazine at the Royal College of Paediatrics and also happens to be their engagement lead. Stacey and I spoke to Ashling about the brand new Milestones magazine and what the aim of the magazine was and how Ashling went about setting things up. She was an absolutely lovely person and a delight to chat to. So let's kick off there, shall we? So um, we're here with Ashling Beecher, who's um, the managing editor of Milestones magazine, and also something else that she told me all of ten seconds ago. And I, <laughs> I know, forgot I forgot as well. I think the most important title: um, membership engagement. Lead membership engagement. Lead. Yeah. So I'm here to deliver member communications. So and part of that remit then is the new magazine which we launched last November, which I don't know if you know, but we had a competition to name it as well. I w- yeah, I was paying you attention guys, to Twitter. Yeah, named it. Yeah, well, it wasn't me, but who? It was who, Seb Gray. Seb Gray. Who yeah. is on my editorial team? <laughs> yes, he is. Because um, we really wanted a name that we felt would imbue the college what we were about, but also reflect our mm. members and the children and people that they work with. And I'm obviously happy with milestones. I think it's and it's really kind of grown into itself now. It just runs off my tongue. It's brilliant. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, and that's what we're here to try and catch up with you a bit about. So, what what was the idea behind milestones? Like, what? How did this get birthed? Um, well, I guess you may have noticed that we did have a newsletter previously that mm. was twelve pages, and that went out with archives. And we just felt that we really needed to give members a voice. So for me, when I came on board the college just over a year ago, um, the idea of the magazine, first of all, I definitely knew I wanted a magazine that was by members, for members, so I wanted all the content to be written by members, Mm. and it to be member-driven as well, so to have your stories, your experiences, having that kind of personal narrative that you can offer advice to each other and support. And um, this kind of had issues and concerns that are foremost in your working environment, I guess, in it as well. Um, so yeah, I think that was the whole idea behind it. So the very first thing that we knew was that we wanted to have a name first. That's why we had the competition. Okay. And then I spent a lot of time looking at all the other Royal Colleges um, and what magazines they had and then what would work for us. So for instance, that we were talking about earlier about having the bespoke um, illustration in the front. Because we think that was... It's really nice. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's cool, isn't it? And then we have brainstorming sessions as well. So for I want to be part of this team, which sounds amazing. It sounds yeah. so much fun. 
It did, yeah. So we have to go through this bit. Um, how, what to have on the front cover, and then when we do have on the front cover, what that would be. So like with the um, winter pressures. On first the issue. Yeah. Yeah. So, for instance, again, the snow for the window, and um, a lot of thought put into that because we kind of wanted that to be. I never would have done this. Ah, and the busy waiting room in the background. Oh yeah. Well. Yeah, and the wasting time, bit of a long moment <gasps> there. I had never all these details. They're so detailed. I didn't yeah. know. Oh my goodness. A lot of thought was put into the um the father's face as well because we wanted him obviously to be concerned but also reassure that he's finally seen a pediatrician oh. and that he's in safe hands. And the pediatrician has a rainbow bed, I just noticed as well. Which ties in with the article from yeah. Mike that we had. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. So so is that what happens with the illustrations? Do you take your content and then think how do I transfer this content on into yeah. the illustration? So we look at the content that we have in the magazine and then we think what would be best to be on the front cover hmm. so we knew with this one coming out in november winter pressures probably the foremost issue that our members were experiencing so hmm. we knew we definitely wanted that on the front cover so we started bouncing around ideas so i was asking the editorial team what they think when they think winter pressures and they were like respiratory issues yeah. then we said right sneezing child there definitely needs to be one of them in there <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and then the waiting room i think that's probably something that you're all experienced and accustomed to yeah. so yes. again yeah I, I hope that does that represent what you feel absolutely like? it looks exactly A&E like yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah but we just want something that stands out and looks different and we send a lot of these copies around to various members around the uk and international as well just to spread around their college or their, sorry their hospital just to spread the word about not only the college but pediatrics as well yeah so we kind of want people to see this and it stands out and that they'll read it. Yeah. So, um, and that was another thing as well that we were quite conscious of with the magazine that we didn't want it to be another archives. We wanted the language to be quite conversational and informal so it's easy to digest because a lot of you guys are super time poor. <laughs> so we want something that was easily accessible. You could pick up and have a quick read of and put down again once. Um, so, uh, Ashling, I think that Mouse Things magazine is awesome. Um, but for anyone who hasn't read it yet, what sort of things does it include? So, um, with Milestones, we're hoping to be representative of the wide demographic of our membership base. So, um, a quarter of our members are international, so we'll always have an item from an international member there telling us what it's like to be a pediatrician in their country and what the healthcare system is like. Um, and then we'll always have elements from the trainee committee. So, for instance, in the last two issues, we've had some top tips for exams. We've had some updates from Hannah Jacob and the trainees committee. Um, and then we have a number of regular items as well. So you may have seen the day in the life. We've got the starter for 10 piece where we give 10 questions to a trainee um, the consultant for them to answer. You might have seen that one of the best questions. If you were a radioactive gerbil, what superpower would you have? <laughs> um, and we've divided the magazine as well because it, most important for me is that it's easy to digest for you guys. So in this front section of the magazine, we've got a number of updates. So that's a kind of a roundup of what's been happening in the college or what's been happening in paediatrics in general in the UK and abroad. And then we've got a member section, which is kind of just dedicated to members' views and what's happening there as well. And then we'll always have three features in the magazine as well. And again, it's all about having that personal narrative of members coming through. So we'll always have a story from a member. So um, in this issue, we've got a story from a member who recounts his 50-year career in paediatrics, yeah, which is perfect. 
Yes, lovely. Oh. I haven't read it yet. No. Yeah, my, my issues have been quite right. It's such an adventurous time. It's mm. just like, oh my goodness me, my life is so boring. <laughs> yeah. And um, in the summer issue, we're going to have someone talking about their time on the Global Programme in Sierra Leone. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so our next summer feature will um, heavily feature a lot of what's happened in conference because mm. that'll be happening in April. So we'll have a feature on conference and we'll also have a feature on the pastors, mm-hmm. which you guys are having this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, what I've really enjoyed about all these pieces from the last issue that I read is it, it makes paediatrics feel like a much smaller world. Like I feel like I suddenly know a bunch of people who I've never met before really personally. Exactly. Yeah. Which I'm really pleased to hear because again, <laughs> it's just coming back to that writing style. We just definitely wanted to feel like it was your peers speaking to you. Mm-hmm. So that's why we always have a headshot, which everyone's really reluctant to send. So I think it's really important to have it because it feels like they're speaking to you. Mm-hmm. And we always have um, their job title, hospital that they work in, and a Twitter handle as well if you want to connect up to them. But it's about very important for me for the personal voice to come through so that having that narrative, it's written from their perspective. Um, and again, just the language being very conversational and formal as well. I think it's quite important because it does feel like they're speaking to you. Yeah. I hope. Yeah. Um, so, how can uh, paediatricians and trainees and other um, people that work in paediatrics get involved with the magazine? <gasps> Reach out to me, pretty please. <laughs> <laughs> you may have seen it's um, dotted around throughout the magazine, um, but you can get in touch with us at milestones at rcpch.ac.uk, or if you so you can get in touch with me, or I've got an editorial team, we are all on Twitter, <laughs> and we tweet about the magazine, so you can get in touch with any one of us and reach out with some ideas or thoughts that you have, we're really eager to be as representative of our members and their interests in milestones, so we'd love to hear from people, especially our Welsh members too, <laughs> big shout outs. <laughs> <laughs> that looks that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And like I said, like I do definitely want to hear from our Welsh members. So like, if you guys even talk to your colleagues or anything, yeah. please do. And I'm definitely getting you to write something well me. <laughs> and you're going to do the review, aren't you? Yeah, I'll do the dragon yeah. review. Yeah. Yeah, because you told me had don't forget the bubbles this yeah. time round. Next up, we have Dr. Matthew Snape. Associate Professor in General Paediatrics and Vaccinology at the Oxford Vaccine Group. He gave a fantastic lecture on both vaccination and vaccine hesitancy. He took some time afterwards to speak to me about his talk. Um, so I'm, I'm Asim, I'm here with uh, Dr Matthew Snape who's um, an Associate Professor in General Paediatrics and Vaccinology and also part of the Oxford Vaccine Group. Um, who did a talk today about vaccine hesitancy and vaccination in the UK. Um, hello, Dr. Snape. Hello. Hi. Um, so I just wanted to open up just by saying I was genuinely surprised and pleas- in a pleasant way at how, how optimistic a number of the messages you had for us were today. I think that's important to remember that overall the vast majority of children are immunised. The targets here are definitely ambitious. 95% of children achieving their MMR by two years of age or whatever criteria we're using. These are important targets. Um, and yes, there has been some decline in the immunisation rates over the last three or four years, and that's been a worrying and persistent decline. We need to be mindful of that, but overall many things are done very well in the immunisation schedule. 
I think in particular we are very good in this country at adolescent immunisation, delivering through schools and getting a very high uptakes of HPV and NACWY vaccines. The rates of uh, immunisation of pregnant women with pertussis vaccines are approaching 80%. That's still not enough, but it's better than the vast majority of countries that are using antenatal pertussis. So there are some things we do well, uh, but there's lots of work to be done. Yeah. I mean, it was, really, it was strange to hear that despite all the headlines we get in the newspapers, actually a number of countries look to us, look to the UK, as, a, as an example of how to do a vaccination programme well. I think we lose sight of that in this country about with the NHS or the things it does well. The, the national and uh, universal nature of the NHS means that we are very good at introducing changes to the immunisation schedule and very good at looking at the impact of those changes. So we get very quickly high uptake rates for a new vaccine, like the MenB vaccine that was introduced. Within a few weeks, uptake rates were over 90%. That's extraordinary yeah. for a change. And we can uh, flick a switch, if you like, and suddenly that is now the new schedule, and everyone is using the new schedule. Yeah. We are very good at that. Yeah. Um, we're also good at, uh, as you say, monitoring the impact of that schedule, so that for every case of invasive meningococcal disease is tracked, hmm. and so we're very much able to monitor the impact. So those things the rest of the world does look to the UK as a model for, yeah. by no means perfect. There are, I think, uh, some of the changes that came into the uh, um, healthcare system uh, four or five years ago, uh, a bit longer perhaps, did impact on the delivery of immunisations, and perhaps the message wasn't getting to parents as clearly, the mail-out's not getting to them as regularly to remind them for their children needed immunisations. I think some of those things may have resulted in this slight drift down in the immunisation uptake. Hmm. Uh, so as we're on the, on the topic of uh, a drift down in immunisation uptake, I think so the bulk of your talk was focused around vaccine hesitancy yeah. and it might be worth um, perhaps pointing out to our listeners what the difference is between the vaccine hesitant and the actively anti-vaccine yeah. groups. No, there is definitely a, a core of, uh, say, let's say, one or two percent of the population who are just do not want to, their children to have uh, vaccines in general or particular vaccines like MMR or, mm. or something else like that. Um, and then there are many more uh, that are either just want more information or want to talk to somebody or haven't quite got round to getting to that appointment yet mm. um, or can't find the time at their surgery to get to the, uh, their child immunised. And I think it's that latter group that where a lot of work needs to be done and perhaps is most productively done to provide information, to provide reassurance, provide a appropriate... Um, communicate appropriately the level of risk and balance in terms of getting the vaccines or not getting the vaccines. Yeah. Um, and for that, in terms of that information, I think it's really important for paediatricians to be fully informed rather than just making blanket statements that saying all vaccines are safe and that's fine, but to actually know the information and be able to answer the questions in an accurate way. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of, of general paediatricians, what, what, what other things can we do as frontline staff to try and try and help with, with vaccine hesitancy, not help with it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think be aware, be informed, look for the opportunities. When a child who comes into hospital um, isn't fully immunised, to take a moment to explore that. Yeah. And as I was saying, uh, 
when you're doing an accident emergency shift on a busy Friday evening, that can be difficult. And in some situations, it can just be there, at least giving the opportunity to say, look, if you want to speak to someone or you want an uh, independent source of evidence, you can look up, for example, the Vaccine Knowledge Project or some other source of information, providing information. One thing I don't think we do enough of is actually giving the vaccines. If that child is up on the ward then, they've recovered from whatever that reason they were in for, is to just arrange for them to get that dose of MMR now, before they go home. I don't think we do enough of that and uh, we could be a lot more uh, um, positive um, in, in, in making that happen. You did mention along those lines this fantastic immunisation project they have in Melbourne. Um, yep, so I, I trained at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne yeah. and uh, actually it was, uh, I think one of the first times I got interested in immunisation was when we had a child on a cardiology ward who was unimmunised and there was a bleep number we could ring uh, of a bleep um, uh, to get the immunisation nurse along who could then talk to that family and you had a contact and I had a conversation with her about how you communicate these things and it kind of just got me thinking about how that can be done. That is a large tertiary children's hospital in Melbourne but I th- but it is really, they see themselves as advocates for immunisation and that if they're not going to be giving the vaccines in hospitals then who, what kind of message does that send? Oh you should get a vaccine but we're not going to do it. Yeah. You know, that is not the right message to be sending. They have a specific uh, booth uh, set up as one of the first things parents see when they walk in is um, the immunisation uh, office and, uh, and and nurses and a team that is specifically whose specific job it is to uh, talk to parents in hospitals whose children are under immunised and arrange for them to get the vaccines and then to be prom- promoting and communicating about vaccination in general. So we should just be being a lot more proactive about getting getting yeah. kids we see immunized yeah absolutely and that you know a lot of us are hospital based mm. we can still do it yeah. uh, and there does and then you need to communicate with the gp and everybody else you know this child has had the vaccine that shouldn't be a reason not to do it those paths exist and yeah. it is very easily to be done i think there is sometimes a little bit of squabbling about whose budget it comes out of yeah. i would rather that wasn't part of the conversation and i would think pediatricians should try and actively manage that and say well it's still our job to do this yeah yeah Fantastic. I don't want to take too much more of your time. Thank you for, for speaking to us. Was there anything else that you wanted to say? I think it's important to remember to be positive and not to be defeatist about this. There has been, it is important to pick up that there has been a trend down in immunisation uptakes. I don't want to ignore that. And I think a lot of that is to do with um, the logistics of getting making it as easy as possible for parents to get the vaccines. But paediatricians also have an important role in uh, being fully informed. So when they do have conversations, they can engage with them very readily and with confidence uh, and to be looking for any opportunities we have to get the vaccines in. Thank you very much Dr Snake. Finally we have Dr Jennifer Evans, consultant paediatrician with an interest in infectious diseases working in the University Hospital of Wales. She was invited on stage by another of our speakers, Mercy Shabemba, who used to be one of Dr Evans's patients. Mercy is an activist passionate about the importance of the voices of young people shaping global health. She and Dr Evans gave a very moving account about growing up with HIV, the difficulties in disclosing the diagnosis and the impact that paediatricians can have on their patients' lives. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to catch up with Mercy because she had to leave. However, I did catch up with Dr Evans afterwards and we spoke about the discussion she had with Mercy on stage. 
fingers crossed one day in the future I might be able to convince Mercy to do a podcast with us because she was absolutely fantastic. Right, um, so I'm here with um, Dr Jennifer Evans, one of the general paediatricians at the University Hospital of Wales and with an interest in infectious disease. Uh, hi Dr Evans. Hi, hi, nice <laughs> to see you. Um, you did a, you and um, you were with one of uh, your ex-patients I yes. suppose, um, I, who I don't know if it's right to name. Yeah, I think it's okay because okay. uh, Mercy yeah. is a um, she's uh, an activist who um, uh, campaigns uh, um, against the stigma that's associated with HIV and AIDS, and um, she's done that by being living openly with her HIV status. And uh, um, she made that decision a few years ago, so she wouldn't have any problem um, uh, being named or. Um, uh, her diagnosis being disclosed at all. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, she was absolutely she was confident and, and open about it all when she was. A, so just to put things in in context, what was the the talk between yourself and Mercy? Well, I about? think the the organisers of the day had asked Mercy to come and talk about um, um, her work uh, uh, with HIV and her relationship with. Um, healthcare over the years so she suggested that we did a presentation together mm. so we decided that we would just have a conversation and ask each other questions we've known each other for over 12 years now mm. she was um, uh, nine when I met her yeah uh, she didn't know her diagnosis um, so we've gone through um, uh, changing her medicines many times um, her learning about her diagnosis coming to terms with that some very rocky times coming to terms mm. with that diagnosis and then eventually her um, she began um, campaigning and fighting against the stigma associated with HIV um, through Cheever which is the Children's HIV Association mm. she joined them and that's something that we encourage all our young people to do because it's really great peer support and uh, she used to campaign anonymously, but then uh, when she was about 18, she decided to um, be open about who she was and uh, felt that she'd be able to make a uh, bigger difference uh, doing it that way. So very bravely did that and has gone from strength to strength. I mean, she, she's an incredible person. Just listening to some of the things she, she'd been doing, the places she goes to campaign, it's just phenomenal. Um, and. I, I suppose they must. It's a shame she wasn't here for us to chat to. But I'm sure she must find something empowering in taking control of. Yes, I think the last question I asked her was, you know, how did she balance um, her activism with, um, you know, being a person who's living with a chronic disease? Mm. And she said, actually, it's now it's much easier because she's living openly with it. She comes into contact with many, many people who are going through similar experiences that what she has, yeah. and actually that's made it a lot easier. Yeah. Um, and. Um, uh, she sort of copes with it much better now than she said that she did a few years ago when she was less sort of open about it. Yeah, there, there were a lot of uh, a lot of interesting insights, not in, only into Mercy's side of things, but also from your side of things, because you've seen sort of the HIV infection sort of from from its roots in yeah. in you know the the late uh, part of the twentieth century right through until now, where it's actually a very well controlled thing. Yes. How have you found that? Well, yeah, so that I qualified in the mid-80s, and yeah. actually my first paediatric job brought me into contact with um, young people who had become infected with HIV. So I've worked with children and families ever since then, which is now for over 30 years. Mm. So back in the 80s and the 90s, it was a terrible condition. It was a, so everybody died. Um, there were no effective treatments. It was just 
children and uh, sometimes several siblings in the family, a mother and the father, all suffering from different stages of the disease at any one time, mm-hmm. and also associated with a terrible stigma. We still have a stigma now, but it was extraordinary back in the 80s and the 90s. Um, and that was just driven by fear. And um, then um, the latter part of the 90s saw the introduction of effective drugs. And now um, this is a condition that is well controlled with drug therapy. Um, But um, we mustn't sort of um, ignore the fact that it is still a chronic disease with sort of um, a lot of unanswered questions still. And people have got to um, understand it to be able to live with it. Absolutely. But it's a real uh, privilege to have looked after people all these years. And one of the virtues of getting old is that you build up a filing cabinet of experiences and memories and um, influences that you call upon then in your everyday clinical life. Yeah. yeah. So I don't look after Mercy anymore. She's transitioned into, yeah, she, uh, she got married last year, so I thought you know, it's time to discharge her probably from the paediatric <laughs> clinic. Um, so she's moved on. And um, But, you know, I'm, I'm in clinic only yesterday, I remembered something that she'd said to me several years ago when I was yeah. talking to another young person. Yeah. And that happens all the time. There, there was def- a definite warmth in, in the relationship between the two of you up there because you were... At her wedding? Yes, um, yeah. Oh, I was really touched to be in. Myself and the clinical nurse specialist from the clinic were invited to her wedding, yeah. which was really, really special. And uh, as if somebody had said to me 30 years ago that uh, I would one day be at the wedding of, uh, of a child who had congenitally acquired HIV, I wouldn't have believed it, you know. So yeah. it, was, it was special to be there, to be part, because of being so close to Mercy and her family over all these years, yeah. but also for all those children that went before as well, you know, to remember them. I mean, if there's ever been a, a reason to become a paediatrician, I think you've just given it. That, I mean, that's phenomenal to have that, that to have known that you've had that much of an influence and impact on someone's life, and that they care that much about you. Yeah, no, that, that's 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 what this is all about, and uh, you know, um, and when uh, you look after children for a long time and sometimes when relationships get a little bit sticky and you feel that communication isn't working you don't give up you know you just have to um, find a way through give people time and um, and reassess how you're sort of trying to communicate and think well I'm going to try something different and um, you know Mercy's really testament to you know how to live positively with what is a really really serious illness yeah well I want to thank you for taking time to speak to us about this. Was there anything else that? No, it was a pleasure. It's been a great day, and yeah, uh, you know, and I'm I'm really grateful that uh, well, it was Mercy that asked me to take part in that, and and uh, I really enjoyed it. It was great. Well, it was fantastic to listen to, and th- and thank you for taking time to record with us as well. No problem. It's a great. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I hope you all enjoyed listening to those interviews as much as we enjoyed chatting to all those people. Everyone was absolutely fantastic and a delight to speak with. I really want to say thank you to Ashling, to Matthew and for Jennifer to, for speaking with us uh, during the conference. And we, we also want to say thank you to Mercy Shabemba, who hopefully we'll be able to invite onto our podcast at a later date to speak to directly. Join us again next week when we'll be having our final set of interviews from the St. David's Day Conference. We spoke to Dr. Mike Farquhar about sleep, Max Davey about screen time, and we also had a chat with Tom Cromarty, the RCPCH trainee rep here in Wales, about setting up the St. David's Day Conference. So that's all to look forward to. Anyway, thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.